Hello, welcome to today's video. My name is Mark, and today I'm gonna to be sharing with you a couple of stocks that I'm personally adding to my portfolio. Since I joined the channel and started working with Brandon, this is, this is not something that I have done and shared the actual purchases I'm making, and there's a really good reason for that. In the last two months, I haven't bought anything new in my portfolio. In my opinion, the markets in general, most pockets of the world are fairly well valued, perhaps fully valued, or maybe even slightly into overvalued territory. So for that reason, I just haven't been, I haven't found anything that looks out to me as something I needed to buy. I've recently added some additional cash to my portfolio. And when I looked at the cash weighting, it's higher than I want to be. So uh, I found a couple of stocks I've done my due diligence on. One I already own, and I'm going to be bumping up the position on that. A second one is a new company. I don't believe I've ever owned before. If I have, it certainly hasn't been in recent years. I don't recall um, owning it, although I have looked at it in times gone by. So we'll be doing that today. I do believe, as I mentioned, the markets are fairly heavily valued. I'm just going to throw up a, a, a chart on the screen here so you can see it. This is just a look at the S&P 500 uh, PE ratio, PE levels today. You can see on this chart here, it looks to be at least at a minimum fully valued. So I haven't been committing a whole ton of money to the markets these days. Now, before I get started, as always, the first link in the video below is uh, for our investing academy. And if you're interested in learning about, if you're a beginner investor, you wanna learn the basics. If you're a more advanced investor, we've recently added the mastery course for people who have more experience or just wanna take their investing game to the next level. And we also have recently started our uh, private membership group. So check out that link below. You can get more information on that. The first talk I'm going to talk about today is a company that you may or may not have ever heard of. It's called Roche Holdings. This company is based out of Switzerland and it's currently trading at around $41 US. It is a it has a market cap of about $285 billion US. Before I get into a deep dive here, I will note that I find this space, this pharmaceutical medical space, really difficult to perform my, my research on. A lot of the, I mean, the drugs, etc. a lot of the trials that they have to do are, it's almost like a different language. I do put a lot of faith into the scientific research that's done. I'm not going to second guess what those you know, levels are. I just want to make sure that the companies I own, and I do own in this space right now, I own Merck already, I own Johnson & Johnson, and I own Pfizer. So I do have some familiarity with the space. But we're, you know, some of the due diligence I'll share with you today is difficult to understand. If I mispronounce, if you're a scientist, if you're a pharmaceutical scientist, and I mispronounce some of the studies or some of the drug names, just forgive me because I don't speak Latin, and this is just a challenging thing. So I just wanted to put that provisor out there before I get started. So let's talk a little bit about the the company Roche itself. As I mentioned, it does it is based out of Europe, and it is one of the. In fact, it's the largest player in the global oncology space. And so they do a lot of their work on treating cancer. In North America, they are overlooked for the most part by a lot of investors. As I mentioned, uh, you know, Merck, Pfizer, J&J, &J, they tend to get much of the public, uh, of the, the coverage, but a company like Roche is a direct competitor in many ways, as we'll see as we go through here. The company operates in over a hundred different countries. As you can see by the chart I'll put up here, it has, in, in 2019, its instruments were used to conduct 21 billion tests. Now that's 57 million tests a day, and that gives you some sense of the scope of the company. 63 million patients are treated with, with, the, uh, with the medicines that Roche produces. 
In the industry leadership column, you'll see they are number one globally in biotechnology, oncology, and in vitro diagnostics. In the US, they operate under the sort of the division or the group Genentech. Roche is the European, and for most of the world, that's the way it's known. And they do have a presence in Japan as well. In their US operations, bit of a mixed blessing. 50% of their sales are paid for by the government. So they, they have large contracts with the US government. They pay for those sales. So that's a pro and a con. It's a pro because the likelihood of them getting paid is very good. The con, though, is that the US government has been, if you've probably been following over the last few years, they've been putting a lot of pressure on pharmaceutical companies with this very popular concept of reducing drug prices. So the Trump administration for four years kept talking about it, made some changes, especially later in the administration. And Biden, of course, has also talked about uh, having his administration do something in this regard. My expectation, in fact, my assumption is that there will be changes made, but I don't see them playing a huge role in you know, the valuation of a company like Roche. And so even though I acknowledge that that's currently what's happening, I don't think that's gonna be a huge major negative to the company. One of the largest geographical regions around the globe that Roche has activity in is in China. And on the chart that I'm gonna put up on the screen now, you're gonna see something that I find is very critical to the company going forward. This chart looks back about 20 years or so, and what it's showing is the time that from a approval of a drug in the US to approval in China has shrunk by by uh, exponential numbers. When we look back to 20 to the you know late 1900s or, or 2000, it took years and years and years from the US approval to have the same approval occur in China one of their now largest markets. If you look at more recent numbers, you'll see that that is gradually, especially since around 2015, become more and more, the time has been shortened. In fact, right now uh, in 2015 to 2020, the average time is about nine to 12 months. And in 2020, there's that time frame has been shrunk to about five to six months following US approval. So that is something that the industry in general has seen, but that benefits a company like Roche tremendously. One of the most important things in this space, in the pharmaceutical space, is the pipeline. What products do you have coming down the pipe? Because as I mentioned, it can take years and typically does for, comp or for products to be, to be approved. So if you don't have a fill in there and something goes awry on the front end, well, you're gonna be in deep trouble. The, a, a pipeline in this industry is really the lifeblood of any company. We're going to look at a few charts now to show you the activity. I wanna say these charts, don't bother trying to read them. I'm showing them just as a sort of a 30,000 foot view of the scope of what they have going on right now. When you look at the first chart, it's gonna show, like there's phase one, phase two, phase three, or you've probably heard a lot of those, especially in light of the recent pandemic developments, but the left two thirds of the chart shows drugs that are in the development pipeline in phase one. The right column in this chart shows drugs that are in phase two development. The next slide I'll show you here shows phase three on the left, two columns. Again, quite a number. The right side shows drugs that are now in registrations. There are some major pending approvals for their 2021 pipeline. A majority of these are in the EU and in China, as you can see by this chart here. And finally on this, the granted approval. So, th so far this year in 2021, they've had US approvals, they've had EU approvals, and they have had an approval in Japan as well. So I hope that gives you a, a general overview of what 
Roche does, where they operate, you know, the, the size of their operation. Let's take a look, a little deeper look now into some of the numbers, and we're gonna start with earnings. Now, 2020 was not a great year for the company. You, we saw sales decline by 5%. In the first blue column, you're gonna notice the 2020 year, the sales were 58.3 billion. And now these are not US dollars, these are in Swiss francs. The company operates in, or they're based out of Switzerland, so they do report in Swiss francs. You'll see that is down 5% from their sales in 2019. So overall, they had a 5% decline in revenues. A lot of that was currency related. If you look in the next column, so it would be the fifth column on this chart, the percent change in CER, you'll see is plus one. Now CER stands for constant exchange rate, and it's a measurement, it's a non-GAAP measurement that companies who do business in various currencies will use. So you're, if you're looking at a European country, or company rather, that does a lot of business in the US, and you know they're gonna give you both numbers. They're gonna give you the native dollar number, so in this case, down 5%. They're also gonna show you if currency had not been an, uh, a factor, what that number would be in CER. So in this case, the number was plus 1%. If we look at the net earning or net income lines, you'll see a, an even more noticeable impact here. The net earnings in Swiss francs is up 7% year over year. That translates into a 17% growth when you factor in the, or you factor out rather the US inflation. I'll just throw a quick chart up here of the Swiss franc versus the US in 2020. And you can see that the franc gained uh, almost 10% against the US dollar. And so that will have a negative impact when the local currency is going up against the US dollar. Uh, you're going to see a negative impact from that perspective. I did a video a short while ago, a few weeks ago on, on hedging, and it kind of explains how the currency fluctuation will affect the returns on any particular country. You can have a look at that uh, if, you, if you're interested in learning about that. On a positive note, the company did show strong growth across a number of different nations and in fact, across most of the world. In North America, their sales were up 34%. In the EMEA, which stands for Europe, Middle East and Africa, uh, in this case, the growth was 62%. Asia Pacific, another 62%. And in Latin America, the sales were up 71%. Gross profit margin for this company was 73%. And that shines in comparison to this industry. As you probably know, gross margin will be different in certain industries. The median number in this industry is uh, 55.3. So having a 73.2% gross profit margin is very attractive. From a valuation perspective, they're trading with a PE ratio, a price to earnings ratio now at around 18%. Uh, that is compared to their five-year average of just under 22. So they're trading under that average. And again, when we compare that to the sector median of 38.4, they seem to be tra uh, trading right now at a quite an attractive valuation, at quite an attractive PE ratio. Moving on to their dividend, they do pay a dividend of just under 3%. The time I'm filming this, it's about 2.9%. A, a unique part of this company is they pay their dividends annually. If you are looking to buy this company in the near future, you will not be getting a dividend for 2021. That's or the time has already passed. That was declared and paid back in March. So keep that in mind if you're buying this for a dividend play. The yield isn't bad, but you're going to get that payment once a year early in the year. This is, however, the 34th consecutive year of growth that this company, uh, growth in the dividend that this company has paid. And so that shows you a little bit about their track record there. The payout ratio for the company is currently 45%. So I feel from that perspective, if you look at that valuation, the dividend is consistent, reliable, and it's in you know very safe territory. There's plenty of extra cash to pay that dividend. 
I want to say now let's look forward because, you know, we can always look back and see what has happened. And that is a good, you know, it's, it's something we need to know, but it isn't necessarily indicative of what's coming forward. If the company's in a dying industry, well, it doesn't matter what they did last year, what's going to happen next year. So let's look at a few things. And the number one thing I want to look at, first of all, is the product growth. So what is the potential going forward in this sector, in this industry? Probably the most important element of that is what's called R&D or research and development. You have to keep that pipeline full. In the space, Roche is the highest spender in biopharma R&D. When you look at it compared to its competitors, its major competitors, which are all of the big players on the planet, you'll see the black line is Roche, and they spend roughly $10 billion a year in R&D. So this is really critical to keep that pipeline full. As you can see, they are about double many of their competitors and 20 to 30% higher in R&D spending than even their nearest competitors. Another thing we need to talk about is the marketplace. Is the marketplace growing or is it shrinking? Sadly, in this case, the marketplace is growing rapidly. And I say sadly because for Roche, that's a very good thing. But for, for we humans on the planet, it's not a good thing. There's two main drivers that are increasing their market. Global obesity is rising as you know all kinds of you know nations rise their standard of living and and obesity is rising that way. Also, the population is just flat out aging. You know when we look at you know every year everybody gets a year older and the older you get the more that um, affects your health. Half of the revenue, the, more than half of the revenue of this company comes from oncology or cancer. So let's take a moment and look at some of their cancer related metrics that will drive the company going forward. According to the International Agency for Research on Cancer, in 2020, there were nearly 20 million new cases of cancer. Now this, this pie chart shows you the new cases in 2020, both sexes, all ages. It's just a global snapshot of the fact that it, despite the billions and billions of dollars being spent on cancer research, cancer treatment, we're still suffering dramatically. Even worse for cancer, but better for Roche, is the next chart, which shows the number of new cases that are projected between now and 2040. When we look at this, the 20 million roughly today, 19.3, that's expected to rise to 30 million, more than 30 million cases a year by the year 2040. This is a global issue. There's no corner of the world that is safe from cancer. When you look at it from a company perspective, in putting it in these terms, there's a long runway ahead. It's not a good one, but we need companies like this who are going to continue to develop uh, medications, treatments, uh, preventative measures, whatever they can to try and help that. But the, the you know the, the the pendulum is still swinging very much in the wrong direction. No evaluation of a company would be complete without looking at some of the risks that the company's facing, and in this space. It is a very competitive space. Now that said, there's a huge moat. There's a huge, uh, you know, barrier to entry. Not many companies are just going to start up as pharmace pharmaceutical companies and be able to compete with these giants out there. So the industry itself is is safe, but within the industry, there is a lot of competition that way. Another thing that's really important to talk about are what we would refer to here as generics. We probably heard the term often, you know, a company like this will invent a drug. There's a 20 year patent that they have. And we're going to talk about exclusivity in just a moment here. But they have the patent. They bring the product onto the market. Then at some point, generics start coming in or biosimilars is another industry term that they use. They're biosimilars and, and um, generic are 
almost the same, but they're not quite the same. But for the purposes of this discussion, we can just say generic. So what happens is after a period of time, other companies can start selling essentially the same drug at a lower cost. That really cuts into the profits of these companies. Really quickly, the patent life on a drug is 20 years, but there's this period of exclusivity that varies depending on the type of drug. And it can be as low as I think three years or five or seven years. So even though you still have a patent, other companies can start producing and competing against you after that period of time. With Roche, in the last year or so, three of their big drugs have gotten to that point where they've lost exclusivity and it is cutting into their revenue. In fact, in 2019, $10 billion of their revenue came from three names which have now come off patent. Uh, the names here are uh, Rituxan, Herceptin, and Avastan. And as this report shows here on, from the Center of Biosimilars, that's about a $10 billion hit to Roche's top line. Now, as the company says, of course, you know, this is where we look back to the importance of that pipeline. And it is strong and it should be able to replace these revenues, but you're going to see this lumpiness along the way. The second major risk in a company like this is the fact that they are going to have failures. And in fact, just last month, just in March of this year, the company have suspended a trial for one of their main drugs called Tomernison. And this was designed, or this was created to help with Huntington's disease. As of March 22nd of this year, they have paused the studies on these. And as the article says here, this is very unfortunate news to deliver. And this is part and parcel for this type of company. Again, emphasizing, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but emphasizing the importance of having that strong pipeline because you're going to spend tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in development. And this particular drug is in phase three. So this isn't like something that came out of the gate and didn't work. They've spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy on this. And now they're having to stop that. And so whether it'll ever come back, uh, whether it's a pause or a complete stop, uh, we don't know, but that happens from time to time. Uh, something to be aware of in this space and it's quite unique to this space, I would say. Lastly, I would say foreign currency. You always have to be aware of foreign currency like we talked about earlier and, and I did talk about how the Swiss franc rose against the US dollar and so anytime you're dealing with a company that deals, you know, is located in another country, you're going to have these issues that you have to be aware of. Looking at the target price, the Wall Street analysts have a median target price right now of about $48.5. So that is trading at about 15, about 16% above today's trading levels. From that perspective alone, it looks like there is some upside there. To sort of wrap this up, this is not a company that I expect is going to shoot the lights out. It's not going to double overnight, but it is going to provide a reasonable dividend. It's got great potential. It's something that you know, as an older investor, I want to have the stability in my portfolio. I would also argue, though, even for a younger investor, we're talking here about having decades of growth and production. So it could be a good addition to the core of a portfolio if this is the type of investments that you're interested in, 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 in holding. Lastly, on this uh, on Roche, I would say it is a defensive stock. It has defensive characteristics. People aren't going to stop getting sick just because maybe you know there's, a, there's an economic recession, that type of thing. In fact, that usually exacerbates things and makes things worse. So for all those reasons, I'm adding a roast to my portfolio as a, as a new holding. And it's something that you might want to consider, again, if it fits your profile. The next company I want to look at is another European country. It's from Holland, Rotterdam, I believe is their head office. And it is Unilever, a company that you probably have heard of. And if not, you definitely have used some of their products or probably are using them right now. So Unilever, the ticker is UL. It trades on, on the New York Stock Exchange. 
And it's trading right now at around $57. The company is about $150 billion in market cap. As I mentioned, brand awareness. You, everybody, most people on the planet will have something in their house that comes from Unilever. Just have a look at this brand chart. And this isn't even everything, but this is, I mean, if you eat, you might have something here, especially if you like dessert. Uh, you know, they, they do peanut butter, margarine, uh, mayonnaise. They have, if you if you want to smell good, they have in the upper right-hand corner of this chart, you know, Dove and Axe and soaps and they, you know, they have hair products and Q-tips and Vaseline and, and you name it. They have so many products that are well-known and used every single day by people around the globe. They operate their company in five main segments, the largest being beauty and personal care, which is about half of their, uh, their product segment. They have foods and refreshment, which is just over a third of their uh, footprint. They have home care, nutrition, and prestige. A little closer look here shows that 66% of their revenues come from the top 10 brands. And just as a quick note here, on the chart, you're gonna see turnover, the term turnover. In UK, turnover is essentially the same as revenue. So if you see turnover, 66% of their turnover comes from these top 10 brands, just think of it as 66% of their revenue because it is the same thing. The next tier down, about 100, in, in the 100 million to $250 million category, that's where about a quarter of their turnover or revenues come from. The remaining brands count uh, uh, account for about 11% of their turnover. The company does have a strong global presence starting on the left with China, India, USA, Indonesia, and you can see going down the chart to the right there, the, the presence that they have in growth markets of the world. And I would say this is a, uh, again, it's a pro and a con. There is, you know, as the world develops, a company like Unilever just has so much market that they can start selling to. So to have all these, uh, these developing companies is, I would say on the face of it, a, a good thing. Let's take a look at some of the numbers. 2020, the most recent reporting period, I would say is mixed. If we look purely at revenues, their revenues came in at about 51 billion euros, which is down 2.4% year in year, or year over year. Keep in mind, there was a negative currency uh, effect, just like there was with Roche. The euro gained about 10% versus, uh, against the US dollar during the year as well, so that had negative effect there. On a positive note, we're gonna see net profit and cash flow we're up on the year. Looking at the various category dynamics, you're gonna see a, a real dispersion of things that happened over the, over the last year. As I mentioned, $51 billion in revenue. The, a couple of the areas that did not do well on the right side of the chart, personal care. This is normally something that does really well for them, but we see, especially COVID-related in Q2, was down about 10%, and overall, that segment was down 4% in uh, revenue years over year. The bottom right, out of home. So this is this is when you leave your home and you purchase their products. Well, clearly in 2020, there's a lot of people who didn't leave their homes. And you can see in, in Q2 a 40%, 42% drop in their production in that area. On the positive side, if you look at the left side, you're going to see hygiene and you're going to see in-home, the two in green there. Now, just to be clear, hygiene in this perspective doesn't mean deodorant, that type of thing. That's fall under the personal care. And I guess seeing as how that number was down, I guess people used a lot less deodorant last year, a lot, a lot less hair shampoo, a lot less soap, that type of thing, because we were kind of huddled down at home. On the flip side, the hygiene in this perspective talks about things like cleaning supplies. And as we all know, cleaning supplies spiked, especially early, and we see a 26% increase in Q2 of 2020. In-home, uh, you know, food, that type of thing, are things that people, those numbers went up just because people were staying at home. 
Looking at their gross profit margin, it's about 43.5% in the trailing 12 months. That is in line with their historic performance, and notably, it is above the sector median, which is around 35%. So when you're comparing it against their peers, that's something you always want to look at is to see in their sector, in their industry, how are they doing? So from a gross profit perspective, they're they're trading at a metric that's more attractive than, than their peers. From a valuation perspective, we can have a look at their price to earnings ratio, which is a, a 20, 21 and a half right now at the time I'm shooting this video. That is below the sector median of 24.4, relatively aligned with Unilever's own PE track record, although it is higher now than their five-year number. So that could, you know, it's kind of conflicting there. They're trading a little bit above their average, but they're trading a little bit below the sector as a whole. Looking at their dividend, it, it's a reasonable dividend of 3%, which is good in the consumer uh, the consumer staples space. They've had good dividend growth recently. I believe in February 21, they raised their increase or they raised their dividend. And the payout ratio right now is at about 50%. And so, you know, as far as stability, I mean, obviously they're a cash cow. They're not going to have any issues with paying that dividend. So it's very secure from that perspective. Looking ahead, as I said earlier, you know, you can look backwards, that's great, but looking forward is really what ultimately matters as an investor. One of the things that Unilever is being very proactive right now is streamlining their products. So they're 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 focusing their resources on a smaller number of their product segment. They're divesting some of the lower margin lines and they're targeting the higher priced ones. You can see from this chart on the screen, this is their home care, B, P, and C, and then they have their food, their foods and refreshments. They're the subcategories within each of those. I'm going to overlay that now, and you can see by the dotted lines that they are—they're calling it a priority focus area on certain products or certain segments within those broader categories that they feel are more profitable, you know, have higher margins, and will be able to just increase uh, help the bottom line on that. This last chart here shows the portfolio reshape in action. If we look back, this goes back about five years. And it shows the breakdown, whether they're divesting of entities or whether they're adding through acquisitions. It shows the beauty and product care is roughly stable, around 50% of their revenue from 2016 through to 2021. It went from 51% down to 49%. Notably, their food and refreshment was 46% of revenue back in 2016. That's now 35% uh, in 2021. And the other segments have started to have a little bit more of an impact. You'll notice 5% from their prestige line. And prestige is essentially, that's their in-house brand. So most companies these days of this size have their, their generic products or their home, you know, the ones that they create themselves. There's a higher profit margin. So they're growing that segment as well. To the baby boomers, sorry, to the millennials who are still watching this video. A lot of millennials these days are spending a lot of time focused on things like social responsibility. And Unilever is truly a leader in social responsibility. I wanna show you a chart that was produced by GlobeScan. It's a, it's a data collecting company. And this is a chart of what they call recognized corporate sustainability leaders. And look at the companies on here. They are global in scope. Unilever is right at the top and by a large margin. So if you're looking at companies that take this social responsibility seriously, whether it's things like, you know, reducing packaging, uh, how, you know, that, that type of thing. This is a company that really is a leader in that space. This is important to Unilever because of demographics. In the previous company, we looked at demographics and how they affected Roche's product with the population being older. Well, let's have a look at this chart, which shows a breakdown of the population of the world. And in 2020, 
55% of the population were millennials or Gen Zs, and 45% of the population were baby boomers or Gen X. Now this chart shows us a measurement of brand loyalty. If you are a millennial, 72% of you will attach brand loyalty to a company that is strong environmentally or socially responsible. If you're a Gen Z, 75% attach value to that type of a company. Compare that with baby boomers and Gen X, where only about half of baby boomers will be loyal to a company because they are becoming more environmentally friendly and about 63% of Gen Xers will do that. So that is a that is a, a, a demonstration of how important it is that companies are aware of the shifts in the way we behave as consumers and they are focused on the tar- on that target market right now. And I mentioned earlier things like, you know, Axe, that type of thing. We all use these products and they're really putting a high emphasis on that correlation between the loyalty to the brand of the younger investor today versus the older investor. Lastly, I wanna talk about e-commerce. All companies are growing their e-commerce division. You can see by this chart here that Unilever is no exception. They have global e-commerce exposure. They're up about 61% year over year in their e-commerce business, which represents about 9% of their overall sales. As I mentioned, you cannot look at any company without assessing the risks. One of the risks we talked about earlier was foreign exchange. As I mentioned, the US dollar, and this is just one example of currency fluctuation, but US dollar gained strength against the Euro last year. So that affected them negatively. It could work the other way around. They do have a large exposure to emerging markets. We looked at a chart earlier. That can be very positive because those are growing markets. They're also, that can be uh, lead to some instability or instability. And so those are things you have to weigh off the pros and cons there. The Last thing I would say on that is competition. I mean, they do have Procter's and Gamble's of the world. They've got you know, a lot of the areas that they uh, have products in. They have you know Nestle, a lot of strong competitors out there. So that's never going to go away. But that's something that we always have to be, uh, you know, uh, mindful of. As far as a target price is concerned, the Wall Street analysts have the target price at about sixty-four fifty right now. Stocks trading, like say, around $56, $57. So that implies about a 13% upside. I'm going to kind of wrap up my analysis of those companies. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. Speaking for me, these are companies that are, you know, blue chip. They're predictable. They're defense minded. For me, these companies fit into my portfolio. So that's, and because I have, you know, higher cash waiting now, that's why I'm going in to buy them now. I'm not necessarily saying they're going to take off because they probably won't. And the types of companies I buy for the most part are core holdings. They're, you know, they're not going to be shooting the lights. So I'm okay with that. What are your thoughts? If you're a younger investor, particularly, I would feel, do you feel there's value in owning companies like this, which are in good growing spaces, but they're not going to be very exciting. If you're a more mature investor, do these types of investors give you, our investments give you the comfort to um, you know, have the stability of your portfolio, especially if you're relying on in for income. I'm very curious what your thoughts are on there. Uh, I'd love to hear your comments. If you did enjoy the video, uh, really appreciate a thumbs up. That really helps the channel out here. And I will just finish it off and I'll just say, I look forward to seeing you in the next video.